But we're talking about God's people and God's plan. And today is really, it's a continuation of, of last week. Last week we talked about the, the final rebellion, and today is a continuation of that, the final rebellion part two. And last night, or, or last week rather, uh, I told you about a particular season of rebellion from my own life. Now, my mom is in the audience today, so I don't see any need to bring up old stuff. Uh, plus, Ed already called me Jesus anyway, so, you know, I, I really don't see the need to kind of go back into that stuff. But, one of the things that we did say, and you'll see a couple of reminders from last week, and here's the first one that has to do with rebellion, is that rebellion always comes with a price, right? Rebellion always comes with a price, and payment is always exacted from places that you never expected it. Can I get an amen from those who have understand that? It is always exacted from places that you never expected, primarily in the forms of your relationships. Okay, But there may be other consequences. It might cost you a job. It might cost you a promotion. It might cause you to, to not be able to advance in, uh, further in school or, or things like that. But there is always, always a cost with rebellion, and it is always expensive, and it is always taken from places where you just absolutely don't expect it. Well, as we talked about, Pharaoh has finally hardened his heart to the point that God has basically let him go, okay? And the text speaks of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and what that means is, hey, look, you've gone so far that I'm just going to let you go. I'm going to let you continue on into that rebellion if that is is the way that you want to go and as we saw last week the result was that tenth plague you know that was like the the granddaddy of all the plagues where it was the death of the of the firstborn and as we said that that last plague that was the one that had no possibility of reversal it's the final blow that god strikes against pharaohs as he has been setting him up for the ultimate showdown that is fixing to take place in the desert. This, this tenth plague, it was the death blow that is the beginning of the end, and there is no turning back. There is no reversal from that. And along those lines, a guy named uh, Brevard Childs, he's, a, he's, a, he's an Old Testament scholar, he says that human patterns of thought and will may in time become irreversible through continual refusal to respond to God's word okay now that's important for us to remember is it not okay through continual refusal to respond to God's word okay God in his free will God in his love he is not going to try to control your life okay despite what some theologies might say he is not going to control your life you have the ability to make your own choices yes or no Okay, you can choose to rebel from God if you want to. You can choose to do your own thing. You can choose not to listen to him. But that too is it, it's kind of like playing with 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 gases with gas and matches. Ma- Let me just back up. It's kind of like playing with gas and matches. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay, eventually, you know, it's all going to go up. Okay, and you can choose to be rebellious. And God will let you go, but there might eventually come a point where God says, okay, I'm going to let you go. You're keeping on going, you're keeping on going, and hey, you harden your heart so much that there's no coming back from it. 
Okay? It's where you just choose not to listen to God. Choose to ignore Him. Choose to continually move further and further and further away from God. But as I think about this, the, the patience of God comes to mind. And that if we persist in our rebellion to God, that eventually He's going to allow us to go off on our own as, as, as Pharaoh did. And so that's what we have seen happening over the, over the past couple of weeks. And so as you move into chapter 13, you read through there, and it is just rife with reminders of the things that, that God has done for His people. Uh, you read through there, and you see that they consecrate all of the firstborn of the Israelites and the animals. And of course, we know that that is a reminder of what just happened in chapter 12. Okay, it's a reminder of the firstborn. Okay, and now they are to be set aside. It is to be a reminder of God's power. It's a reminder of, of God's judgment. And at the same time, it's a reminder of God's grace as they painted the blood on the doorposts. Okay, and God would stand guard at that door, not allowing the angel of death to pass through that house. Okay, but it would have to pass over that door. And so it's that, that reminder there are symbols that they are to tie on their hands and on their foreheads, just like we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And those things, too, are to be reminders. Reminders always of what God has done, because as we have seen, and as we're going to see in just a few minutes, and, and really what applies to us is that the Israelites and us, you know, we sometimes have short memories, do we not? Sometimes we have short memories of what God has done. Are you with me? I know that I do. There are times when I just forget, or worse, choose not to remember how God has, has worked in my life. You know, it, it seems silly to think that they possibly could forget what God has done. Because you think about what we have read over the last couple of weeks. As we have worked our way through, through the different plagues, that God brought down upon Egypt. Now you think about the frogs, and you think about the gnats, you think about the water being turned to, to blood, you think about the, the, the locusts, you think about the, the all-encompassing darkness that took over the land of Eden, except for where the Israelites lived. Okay? And it's hard to imagine that they could forget about those things. It's hard to imagine that they could forget the hand of God was working powerfully on their behalf, yet we know, because we have the, the vantage point of looking back into the story, we know that that is eventually what they are going to do. And, and it's not going to be the only time they do it. They're going to continue to do it. In fact, there's going to be times where it's not that they don't remember what God did, it's that they choose not to remember what God did. And so they're going to end up in exile. They're going to end up in, in captivity as a, as a judgment and as a time of punishment, a time to, to, to hold on to and remember what God has done. And so, and so they are to remember what God has done by consecrating the firstborn. They remember what God has done by tying those symbols on their hands and on their foreheads. And this is, a, this is a reminder to us too, and it's a reminder again from last week. Do not forget who I am. I think that's God's word to us. Do you think so? Do not forget who I am. 
remember what I have done, yet be mindful of what I am doing now and what I will continue to do and what I will do into the future. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on in chapter 13. You have this, this, this scene and these things that go on that are to be reminders of what God has done. And now they have one more that God is fixing to set up for them that should be the ultimate reminder of his power, of his majesty, and of his glory. And it's in the, the final act of rebellion. We read about it in, in chapter 14. Now then, everybody knows this story. And I've said that from the beginning. Everybody knows what happens in chapter 14. They may not know that it's Exodus chapter 14, but everybody, everybody knows about the parting of the Red Sea. Do they not? And as we've said, you know, we've seen it all over the place, okay? We've seen it in Hollywood. Remember how we talked several weeks ago about what maybe your your visualization of Moses is? Maybe you have, you know, Charlton Heston Moses, and that's, that's your guy, that's the Moses you think of. You know, maybe yours is uh, Prince of Egypt, Moses, you know, the cartoon version. That's the Moses you think of when you, when you read this story. Or uh, maybe it's, you know, Batman, Moses, as Christian Bale played, uh, played Moses in the Exodus story that, that came out just, just a couple of years ago. But whatever it is, everybody is aware of this story. Okay, you might not have all the details, and they may not have every, everything exactly right, But more than likely, everybody knows that God's people went into the sea when it opened up so that they could go through on dry land, and the Egyptians followed them, and eventually the sea closed back in on top of them. I would be willing to say that just about everybody knows that story, and it is a a big one. This, chapter 14, this is the money chapter of the entire world book of Exodus. And it's here that early on in the chapter, after Israel has been released, okay, because that death blow came from the the death of the firstborn. It was in the night that Pharaoh summons Aaron and Moses and says, okay, go get out of here. Get your people and get them gone. Get them out of my land. Go worship your God, okay? But some time goes by, and it's not a long stretch of time. I imagine it's only about three days. Time goes by, two or three days, and, and Pharaoh is like, what are we doing? You know, remember, his heart is hardened. Okay, he's standing against the will of God, okay? He's still living in rebellion, and he basically says there in those first few verses, what are we doing? We've sent our entire workforce away. You know, the people that have built our cities, the people that have, we've built our economy on, we just let them walk out the front door, and not only that, we funded their entire trip because we gave them all the booty they needed. We gave them the riches that they were going to have to have, which, by the way, I think all that gold and all of that stuff that they got from the Egyptians, I think it's going to come back into play in just a couple of weeks, so be paying attention because I think it's going to come back around. Okay, but he's saying, what are we doing? Because we've let our people go. As a matter of fact, he says, we, what are we doing letting Israel leave our service? He realizes his mistake, and he begins to give chase. But by now, the three days has passed. Remember back in chapter 5? 
when Moses and Aaron were going to Pharaoh in the early goings. And Moses said, hey, look, I want to take the people out in the wilderness for three days. I want to go out there and I want to, to be able to worship. Well, now the three days has, has passed. But it was never God's intention to take the Israelites on a three-day journey anywhere. The purpose for this ruse is to entice Egypt to follow the Israelites that is eventually going to result in their death in the sea, allowing the Egyptians' punishment to come full circle because as we know from reading this story, these are the people who drowned Israel's children in the Nile River. These are now the people that are going to have that same judgment exacted upon them as they're going to drown in the sea. This, this day here, this is the day of, of reckoning. And so Pharaoh continues his rebellious acts and God continues to harden his heart. Pharaoh sends his army, an army that has more than 600 chariots. And he sends them out in search of Israel. He sends them out going with them, going to try to bring this people back, bring them back so they can enslave, so they can uh, oppress, continue to, to build their economy, continue to build cities on their backs. He goes and he, he gives he goes and he gives chase. And Israel sees them. They look back and they see that Pharaoh is coming. Okay? But Israel, they've got God on their side. They've got Moses as God's right-hand man. So they're like, hey, Moses, we got this. We trust in God. Our God is greater. You know, they're singing that, right? No. They're not singing that. Look at verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and the Egyptians were advancing on them in great what? Fear? Not faith. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, I'm baffled when I read that text. Okay? I mean, I'm blown away that their memory is, is, is that short. But at the same time, this brings up a good point because it brings up something in my mind that we often find ourselves doing. And it, it raises a question of why is it that so many people return to oppression once they've been set freed? Once they've been freed by something, some, some sin, some temptation why is it that we go back to these things the abusive spouse the the, the substance the the drug or the the drink whatever it, it might be 
I think maybe because sometimes we forget who God is. We forget what God has done for us. We forget about his, his power and that he has sent Jesus to free us from those things. I think also, too, is that we are familiar with those masters. Does that make sense? And I'm going to say more about that as we get to the end. But it reminds me of Proverbs 26, 11 that says, a dog, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. But sometimes we do that very thing, do we not? How many times do we step away from the freedom that Christ has given us back into the oppression that, that Satan and sin wants to lay on us? Can you relate to that? Because I can. Okay, I know there are times when I step away from the freedom of God that I don't fully understand because God is too much for me to understand. And because I don't fully know where he's leading me, I step back into something that I know. It might be abusive, it might be oppressive, but I know what it is. And so sometimes we do that. We step back into those things. Now then, it's very easy for me to sit here thousands of miles away and thousands of years down the road and to look back and, and, and shake my head in judgment. Yet I have to acknowledge that I do the very same thing. Okay, we have to acknowledge that we do those, those very same things. So again, the word to us is, do not forget who I am. That's the word of God to you and, and, and to me. But by this point, Moses is in, he's in full command of his faculties. Okay? He has complete authority. Remember back in the early chapters, chapters 3 and 4? Burning bush, Moses is kind of curious, goes and checks it out. Hey, Moses, i got a job for you. Go tell the scariest guy in the world, let the people go. Okay, go do that for me. You know, and Moses is like, whoa, whoa. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that job. What if, they, what if they don't listen to me? You know, that's a scary job. I don't want to go stand before Pharaoh, the most powerful dictator in the world, and tell him what's up. Okay? He's thinking, that's not going to go real well for me. Okay? But now, here we are, ten plagues down the road, ten chapters down the road, and we see a change in we see a change in Moses. Look at verse 13. Now, this is right on the heels of, hey, Moses, what are you doing? Why'd you bring us out? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Okay, we just die in the wilderness? Okay, so it's right on the heels of them saying that. Verse 13, but Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to keep still. And so Moses speaks this, this powerful, this, this commanding, this, this prophetic word over the, the Israelites who are, who are doubting in their faith. It's, it, it carries the tone of, Put your trust in Him and live or turn back and, and die. Yet I think this is more than just a, a prophetic word. Because I think, and put yourself in the position of Moses, I think maybe you can even hear a little bit of frustration. Would you be frustrated at this point? I'm frustrated just reading it. 
Okay? All right? I'm frustrated when my kids don't listen, and there's only two of them. Okay? Imagine a whole nation of people not listening. A whole nation of your kids not listening to you. Imagine what that would be like. Okay? And so Moses is, is speaking out, and he's saying, look, watch God. Be still. Be still and watch what he's saying. Um, Peter Enns, Old Testament scholar, he says, when you, you see that phrase, as a matter of fact, if you like to underline your Bible, if you like to circle, circle that phrase at the end where it says, keep still, or, or something similar to that. If you want to circle that, do that, because there's more to that than just what it says. Okay, uh, Peter Enns, this, uh, this Old Testament scholar, he says that you can hear the frustration in the words of Moses. He says that in the Hebrew, that phrase is better translated as be quiet. He says, but the best translation is shut up. Wouldn't you be tempted to say something like that in that moment? That's what he's saying. Okay, this is not so much about, you know, be still and know. It's not be still and know that I am God. It's more Moses saying, shut up and watch how God works. Watch his power. How have you not seen it so far? Shut your mouth and watch God. Watch what he's going to do. And so, you know, again, I think about this, and I wonder how many moments are there in our lives when all we do is complain? And I'm not talking about, like, lament complaining. You know, if there's injustice going on and in our lives, that's, that's good complaining. That's the kind of complaints that, that God wants us to, to bring before him. The kind of complaining that I'm talking about is, you know, uh, uh, grumbling whining, belly aching. You know what I'm talking about? How many times do we just complain? Do we just grumble? Do we just belly ache? You see, what I want to say to you this morning is that if we have been fortunate enough to see God at work in our lives, then sometimes I think it's best to just shut up and know that He is God to just close our mouths and open our eyes to the power of God, to behold what He has done in our lives. How much, how much would that help us just to do that? But it's not easy because we like to talk, don't we? Okay, we like to say things. Okay, I get paid to talk for a living. Okay? But sometimes, you know what I need to do? I need to just shut up. I need to be quiet. I need to hold my tongue. Because when I'm holding my tongue, my eyes are more open, my ears are more attuned, and I can see and hear and experience more of the power and the majesty of God. And so that's why I say sometimes it's just better to shut up and know that He is God. So you have in verse 15, you have God stepping into the scene. He says, he's like, hey, Moses, what are you doing? Go forward, okay? Get the people moving. He says, I am going to divide the sea, okay? I'm going to open the sea up, and you're going to go through it on dry ground. Also, I'm going to draw Egypt in. They're going to follow you, okay? Drop down to verse, uh, drop down to verse 22. He also says, I'm going to reveal my glory in the process, 
Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And it turned the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued, and they went into the sea after them, all of the Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. By the way, I thought a cooler name for this sermon would be all the king's horses and all the king's men. And then I realized I named last sermon part one. So I was roped into part two. But I thought that would have been cooler. At that moment, excuse me, at the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and he threw the Egyptian army into a panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The sea parts and you have, you have this act of, of creation happening again. And this, this harkens back to, to Genesis. You have dry ground appearing in the midst of, of chaos. Okay, To the ancient Near Eastern people, to, 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 to Bible people and the surrounding cultures, water was always considered something dangerous. Okay, Waters were considered dark. They were considered evil. That's where the, the, the powers that you just didn't know about, that's kind of where they resided. Okay, and so as you read the creation accounts and it talks about there being chaos and God forming out of that chaos, when you see this happening, when you see the water parting you have, and dry ground forming, you have that, that, that creation language because that's exactly what happened. As God created, he brought dry ground. He brought creation out of the midst of, out of, the midst of chaos. And so Pharaoh... Pharaoh's army, he sees this. He sees that the Israelites are going through the sea on dry ground. And so he says, go after them. And so his army goes down in and they begin to give chase when suddenly the, the, the dry ground becomes muddy. Their wheels become clogged with mud and they're bogged down and they're thrown into chaos. And you get to, uh, to, to the end of verse 25, verse 27. It says, let us flee from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting for them against, against Egypt. And then now then notice how the rest of the chapter reads, starting in verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the water may come back on the Egyptians upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed him into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry, on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Terence Fredham says that as morning breaks for Israel, night falls for the Egyptians. As God cuts the Egyptians' participation off from the new creation, the dry land is turned into a quagmire. 
The brightest and, and best of the Egyptian military has become bogged down in the effects of their own anti-creationism. And then the chapter closes out by saying, So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and His servant Moses. And that's the story. That's the story that everybody knows. Just about anybody. You, you, you do, a, do a man on the street interview, you say, hey, tell me the story of the Exodus. And I guarantee you they're going to talk about this. Whether they go to church or not, they're going to talk about the sea parting. They're going to talk about Israel going through and the sea closing back in on the Egyptians. Well, then you get into chapter 15. When I was growing up in my youth group, we used to sing this song, and it was called uh, Victory Chant. And it just built and built and built, and uh, you'd go through the different verses, or you'd go through the rounds, and you'd raise the pitch by a, a step or so. And it was just really, it was really awesome. But you'd go through and you'd sing, you'd sing, Hail Jesus, you're my king. Your life frees me to sing. I will praise you all my days. You're perfect in all your ways. Hail Jesus, you're my Lord. I will obey your word. I want to see your kingdom come, not my will, but yours be done. Glory, glory to the Lamb. You lead me into the land. We will conquer in your name and proclaim that Jesus reigns. Hail, hail, Lion of Judah, how powerful you are. Hail, hail, Lion of Judah, how wonderful you are. And it would just build and build and build and build and build. Chapter 15 is the victory chant from Moses and the, the Israelites. It's this song praising God for what He has done. Saying that He has rescued us. Saying that He has thrown Egypt, thrown the Egyptians, the oppressors, into the depths. God has triumphed. The, uh, the obstinate power of Pharaoh has been broken forever. And now the Israelites sing. After this dramatic unfolding of the passage through the Red Sea, the only appropriate response is praise. Pharaoh's army being sent to the depths in verse 5, it brings to mind the chaos of Genesis 1. And this is a, you know, it's kind of a literary device to remind us not to forget of what the Lord has done. When God moves on our behalf, the only response we should have is praise. Right? When God moves on our behalf, our response should be praise. I think we need to be more purposeful in naming God's activity in our lives. I think we need to be more purposeful at naming God's activity in the life of our church. I appreciate very much what Jeffrey said uh, during our uh, offering as he talked about us opening up and becoming a shelter for those who, who needed a place, who needed refuge in the, in the hurricane. We need to talk about what God has done. Okay? You with me? Okay, all eyes up for just a second. You want this place to grow? Talk about God. Talk about what God is doing in your life. Talk about what God is doing in this church. 
Let your life be a victory chant. Hail Jesus, you're my king. Your life frees me to sing. I will praise you all my days. You're perfect in all your ways. And then tell people why. Our life group has started a, a practice of doing this. Of being more purposeful and being more intentional about sharing things that are going on in our lives. What we're doing is we're taking it in turn to, to share our journey of faith. And here's the thing, it's not just the good stuff. Okay, that's easy. It's easy to talk about the good stuff, right? Okay, what's not easy is to talk about the bad stuff. To talk about the low points, okay? And so we're doing this. We're highlighting, we're highlighting the high and the low points in our walk with God, in our, in our journey. Now then, as the person talks, the listeners, here's the thing. Look at look at behind me. The listeners don't say a word. Keyword, listen. Okay? Active listening. Okay, because what happens a lot of times, people start telling you a story, what do you start doing? You start forming your response, don't you? I do that. Okay, I start thinking about what I'm going to say. I start thinking about the advice I'm going to give you. I start thinking about how I could ask a question or maybe criticize constructively a little bit. Guess what? You don't get to do that. In this exercise, the only thing you do, well, I see some elbows going on back there. The only thing you get to do is listen, and then at the end, you name God's responses in the story. You know, if somebody talks about having a, you know, a rough period in their life, they talk about coming back, and you say, you know, I, I see that, okay, you might have been having a tough time, but God was always with you. And you name God's activity. It's not a time to correct it's not a time to rebuke. It's not a time to make suggestions. It's not a time to ask questions. It's not a time to offer constructive criticism. Now, there's time and places for those, but this is not it. What this is simply about is naming God's activity in our lives. And I think we should do more of that. It's easy to talk about just bad stuff. And I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about bad stuff. But if we're going to talk about bad stuff, then we need to talk about the God stuff that's in the midst of the bad stuff. Does that make sense? We need to name God's activity. All right, so let's, let's, let's land the plane. As I stated last week, as we think about how this is a word for us, as I stated last week, I think this text is saying to us, and I've already stated it again this morning, do not forget who I am. Remember what I have done, yet be reminded and be mindful of what I am doing and what I will do in the future. Uh, my, uh, my Exodus professor, Philip Camp, he offers 10 theological applications that I want to run through very quickly that I think fit very well, uh, that, that go really well with what we're talking about and what we're thinking about as it relates to this text. Number one is this, is that God redeems and liberates His people. 
Okay, as we've seen this story, that is what is going on. You have this people that is oppressed by Pharaoh, and you have God redeeming them. You have God liberating this people. The second thing, the exodus does not mean freedom in the way that we think of freedom. Okay, it doesn't mean freedom in the, the Western sense that we think of freedom. The language in the Bible is clear that God's people do not throw off all masters, but gain a new master who does not deal with his servants in the same oppressive, death-dealing way as the Pharaoh. God becomes the new master. God, as master, is for the welfare and for the peace of his people. Note the frequent servant language applied to God's people in both the Old and New Testaments, and that God and Jesus are Lord and King. We, like Israel, are freed for God's purposes to fulfill our callings for his glory. Okay, so it's not like, hey, we're all free, we don't have to do, we can do whatever we want to. It's no, I'm going to give you a better way. I'm going to free you, follow me. Come under my submission, my rule, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Okay, Jesus becomes our master, God becomes our master. Number three, God judges and shows impotent what others call gods, and so manifests his own glory. We saw that throughout the plagues. All of the plagues, as we looked at the different ones, the blood and the darts and the gnats and the frogs and all of those things, those were all a direct attack from God on the, on the gods, little g, on the gods of Pharaoh. Okay, God, our God, G, capital G, shows himself to be greater than the impotent gods of Egypt. Number four, God fights for his people and the victory is his. They don't have to do anything other than watch and walk as the divine warrior secures the victory. It is God's victory. Therefore, there's no room for a believer's triumphalism. But can we rejoice in the defeat of evil powers? Well, the song in Exodus 15 certainly suggests so, as does Revelation 15. Now, you've got to be careful with that because if you're not careful, you can run too far. You can run too far with it. Number five, God's sovereignty over creation and over nations is again revealed over and over and over again. We've seen that theme running throughout the entire book. Number six, God is present among his pillar in the, the, uh, among his people in the pillar of fire and in the cloud. Um, though it's not an unmediated presence, how God is present is determined by God alone. He initiates, his people respond. This presence is a blessing to those who walk with God and a danger to those who do not. In some sense, the Holy Spirit now serves the function of the cloud among God's people. Number seven, this is a big one. Faith is developed by walking with God, especially into the wilderness and especially through the sea. Uh, Martin Luther suggested uh, that God tests his people by such impossible situations so that faith is put in him alone because no human means can save. In other words, the only way this happened is because God did it. We need to have that kind of faith. A faith so big that the only way something is going to happen is because God moved on our behalf. Okay? We need to envision. We need to dream bigger. We need to ask bigger of God. I'm not talking about name it and claim it. I'm not talking about health and wealth. I'm talking about stepping out huge, bold steps of faith in God in the life of this church and in our lives individually. 
We need to have faith in God that He will move. Number eight, praise is the natural response to the mighty acts of God. When God does move, let us not commit the mistake, the sin, the error, the whatever you want to call it, of not praising God, of being ungrateful to God for what He has done for us. Number nine, and I spoke about this just a few minutes ago. As with Israel, we may often find ourselves preferring a known slavery to an unknown freedom. We seek fulfillment in the same old places, sins, from which Jesus has freed us. We may prefer the known master, even though its way robs us of dignity and leads us ultimately to death rather than the path to true fulfillment. As with Israel, we may prefer to walk by sight, even a blurred and nostalgic but deceitful sight, rather than the wilderness and cross that come en route to the fulfillment of God's promises. And in doing so, we never experience the joy and contentment in service to our God. And then finally, number 10, our own exodus the exodus that you and I experience, our own exodus is found in Christ, who is both our Passover lamb and our guide. And so that leads me to, to the point, because we've covered a lot of ground today, haven't we? Covered a lot of stuff, but isn't this story good? Who would have thought there was so much practical stuff from this crazy story that's thousands of years old? And so here is the, here is the and it, it really, it's just building on last week's, and here it is, that our God, our God is the great God, the great God above all other gods who delivers his people from bondage to freedom, from crying out to praise. That's the God that we serve. That's why we sing our God is greater, our God is higher, God is. You are higher than any other, parentheses, gods. That's what that's saying. Okay? Our God is healer. Our God is the one who is awesome in power. And if our God is for us, nothing can stand against us. We might fall along the way, we might be slain in the process, but to be slain on the side of the Lord is better to live in fear and oppression and slavery to sin. And so our God is great. Our God is the great king above all gods, the one who delivers his people, the one who turns our mourning into dancing, the one who turns our lament into rejoicing. That's our God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you love us the way that you do. Thank you for giving your life for us. Thank you for sparing us. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for being the God who delivers us. Father, help us to remember that our, our choices, that our rebellion, God, if we, we choose to live that way, you'll let us, but it always comes at a price. Father, 
call us out of that rebellion. Break our hearts. Bring us back to you. Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this opportunity to to gather around a table and to celebrate a meal that connects back to this ancient feast, this ancient ritual called the Passover that reminds us of who you are and that reminds us of your greatness. It's in the name of Jesus that we all pray and say together, Amen.